Section 16 of The Logic of Vegetarianism by Henry S. Salt. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Section 16. The Economic Argument. The oftener we go to the vegetable world for our food, says Sir B. W. Richardson, the oftener we go to the first, and therefore the cheapest source of supply. The case for vegetarianism would by no means be complete without a statement of the economic view, though precedence is necessarily given to the motives of humanity and healthfulness, the higher considerations to which the idea of economy must be subservient. If it were proved that flesh food is essential to the real interests of the race, and that there is no moral objection to the use of it, the greater outlay would be justified by the value of the result. But if such proof is not forthcoming, and it has been the object of the preceding chapters to show that it is not, it is obvious that the comparative cost of a flesh diet and a vegetarian diet becomes a question of high importance to mankind. What, then, are the facts? They are so plain as to be positively beyond dispute, and it is a cause for marvel what Dr. J. Burney Yeo can have meant in describing vegetarianism as a scheme of diet which we believe to be utterly impracticable on an extensive scale and irreconcilable with the existing state of civilized man not so much on strictly physiological grounds as on the general economic considerations if it be in accordance with general economic considerations to pay threepence for what can be procured for a penny then only does dr yeo's statement become intelligible for the very first fact that demands notice in this comparison of foods is that not only does butcher's meat, pound for pound, cost about three times the price of the cereals and pulses, but that it is under the further disadvantage of containing a much larger percentage of water, that is to say, in purchasing flesh you have to buy the water, and buy it dirty, while in purchasing seeds and grains you do not buy the water, but add it clean. The following passage from Sir B. W. Richardson's Foods for Man puts the case succinctly. If we make an analysis of the primest joints of animal food, legs of mutton, sirloin of beef, rump steak, veal cutlet, pork chop, we find as much as seventy to seventy-five percent of water. Oatmeal contains five or six percent, good wheaten flour, barley meal, beans and peas, fourteen, rice, fifteen, and good bread, forty to forty-five of water. Taking, then, the value of foods as estimated by their solid value, there are, it will be observed, a great many kinds of vegetable foods which are incomparably superior to animal. We find, accordingly, when we turn from this analysis to the actual charges at restaurants, that, whereas a good vegetarian dinner may be got for a shilling, it is necessary to pay fully three times that sum for an equivalent in flesh food. It would be waste of time to argue further that vegetarianism, whatever its other advantages and disadvantages to the individual, is much more economical than flesh-eating. But here we are met by the difficulty that the well-to-do, on the one hand, are not easily influenced by the motive of economy, while the poor, on the other hand, are naturally suspicious of the gospel of thrift, so often preached to them by the predatory classes who do not practice it themselves and it must be admitted that it is perfectly useless for philanthropical persons to preach food-thrift to the poor, 
unless by their own method of living they are testifying to the truth of what they preach. It is sometimes said that vegetarianism is an inconvenient diet, which means no more than that the adoption of any new system gives trouble at first, though it may save trouble afterwards. When once adopted, vegetarianism is, of course, a far more convenient, because a simpler and cleaner, diet than the ordinary one, as is testified by those who have had personal experience of both. Having been my own butcher and scullion, says Thoreau, as well as the gentleman from whom the dishes were served up, I can speak from an unusually complete experience. The practical objection to animal food in my case was its uncleanliness, and besides, when I had caught and cleaned and cooked and eaten my fish, they seemed not to have fed me essentially. It was insignificant and unnecessary, and cost more than it came to. A little bread or a few potatoes would have done as well, with less trouble and filth. The assertion that the cheapening of food would cause the lowering of wages is true only as an answer to the exaggerated claims sometimes made by vegetarians, that their system would, of itself, solve the whole problem of employment. It would not do so. If there were no force but vegetarianism in the field, it is doubtful whether the adoption of the cheaper diet would in the long run bring any economical advantage to the workers though it would still benefit them morally and physically. This, however, does not detract from the real strength of the vegetarian argument, for with labour now organised and resolute, and yearly growing in power and intelligence, there is no likelihood that the worker's thrift would become the capitalist's profit. On the contrary, it would clearly add to the resources of labour. To assert that the working classes should maintain the cruel and wasteful practice of flesh-eating, merely to keep up wages, is pure nonsense. For the same reasoning would justify the maintenance of drink, or any other extravagant and useless habit. What is true for the individual and the class is true also for the community, and unless flesh-food can be shown to be necessary for human progress, the continuance of pastoralism, to the detriment and neglect of agriculture, is a criminal waste of the national resources. In this Malthusian age of overpopulation scares and emigration schemes, it is well to recollect that a remedy lies close to hand if we would but use it. Not only is the earth not yet a quarter peopled, says Mr. W. R. Gregg, but even the inhabited portion is scarcely yet a quarter cultivated. In many countries the soil is barely scratched. Even in England it is not made to yield, on the average, more than one-half its capacity. And in the same work he points out that the amount of human life sustainable on a given area, and therefore throughout the chief portion of the habitable globe, may be almost indefinitely increased by a substitution pro tanto of vegetable for animal food. A given acreage of wheat will feed at least ten times as many men as the same acreage employed in growing mutton. In view of the great complexity of the land question, the variety of the causes that have led to the depression of agriculture, and the difficulty of forecasting accurately what would be the result of the adoption of any particular free form by any one nation, considered apart from the rest, Vegetarians will do wisely in not claiming too much for the system they advocate. But at least it must be admitted that vegetarianism would tend to bring about, in some form or another, that much-desired return to the land, 
which, in the present congested state of our cities and busy centres, is felt to be the best hope of stanching a dangerous wound. The town is at present draining the life of the country, and the tide of emigration is still further sapping the national strength. But if men's thoughts could be turned back from commerce to agriculture, if a healthy love of the soil, of fruit-growing, of market-gardening, could be substituted for the insane thirst for the feverish atmosphere of the town, it is evident that a great step would have been taken towards the cure of the disease. If the towns renounce flesh-eating, says Professor Newman, we should see in a single generation, even without improved land tenure, a tide of migration set the other way, from towns into the country. Rustic industry would be immensely developed. All motive for the expatriation of our robustest youth would, for a long time yet, be removed, and the country might be enormously enriched, not in an upper stratum of great fortunes, but down to the bottom of the community. So, too, Max Nordau, in some notable passages of his Conventional Lies of Our Civilization, if the soil of Europe were cultivated like that of Belgium, it could support a population of 1950 millions much more completely and abundantly than the 360 millions it now supports so poorly. Cultivation of the soil is the despised child of our civilization. It hardly takes one forward stride where manufacture takes a hundred. Experience teaches us that man's labour, as a general thing, can nowhere be employed in a more lucrative way than in agriculture. If a man should work over his field with the shovel and spade instead of the plough, he would find that a plot of ground of incredibly small size would be sufficient to support him. There is yet another peril that would be lessened in proportion to the increase of vegetarianism, the dependence of this country on the importation of food from abroad. At present, says Mr. W. E. A. Axon, probably one half of the population is dependent upon a foreign supply. That England should be, and is, the last country in the world to desire a Chinese wall for the exclusion of foreign commodities, need not blind us to the fact that there may be grave national dangers in the soil of the country providing food for about half its people. A nation of vegetarians would create such a demand that rural England would be, if not a cornfield, yet a vast orchard and market-garden. Enough has now been said to show that the habit of flesh-eating, involving as it does the sacrifice of vast tracts of land to the grazing of cattle, and the consequent starving of agriculture, is far too costly to be justified, in the face of an extending civilization unless by a much clearer proof of its necessity than any which its advocates have essayed. In fact, it only remains possible, on its present large scale, through the temporary use of huge pasture-grounds in remote semi-civilized regions, which will not always be available. For pastoralism belongs rightly to another and earlier phase of the world's economics, and as civilization spreads, it becomes more and more an anachronism, as surely as flesh-eating, by a corresponding change, becomes an anachronism in morals. It seems, generally speaking, that the foods which are the costliest in suffering are also the costliest in price, whereas the wholesome and harmless diet to which nature points us is at once the cheapest and most humane. End of section 16